This is Eric Krasno, and you are listening to the Plus One Podcast. I want to thank everybody that's been tuning in. We appreciate you subscribing on Apple Podcasts, following us on Spotify, following us on Instagram. All the messages have been great. I appreciate the guest suggestions. We've had some incredible guests. We continue to book uh, really awesome musicians that will be on the show in the coming months. Also want to mention that we're doing a premium version of the show called The Guest List. You can find out more about that at OsirisPod.com. Also want to give a shout out to the Osiris team. They helped me put this show together and they have a lot of other great content. So be sure to check that out at OsirisPod.com. So it's an exciting time. Things are starting to open up again. We're starting to do shows again. A lot of uh, music is going to be coming out. I know I've made a few albums um, since the quarantine began, so I'm excited to start putting that music out. I've also created a new band called Eric Krasno and the Assembly, featuring some incredible musicians. Otis McDonald, who I'm sure you've heard about on this show, if you've been listening. James the Eighth, Curtis Kelly, Will Blades, the legendary organ player, are all part of the group. But the idea is we're going to add people in different cities and, and whatnot as we build the project. That's why it's called The Assembly. And our first gig ever is at Red Rocks on June 4th. And with, that's with the Motet. And that gig actually sold out, so we added um, two shows at Cervantes in Denver. So if you live in the Denver area, check that out. There's still tickets available. There's an early show and a late show on Saturday, June 5th. And we're really excited to bring this music to you guys. So I hope you guys come out and check it out. There's a lot of other shows starting to pop up, festivals. The Jazz Fest in New Orleans is looking like it's going to happen in October. So you'll be seeing dates pop up as that comes together. So we're excited. All the musicians out there are excited to get out there and play. And I'm sure tons of artists will have new albums and new music to release. So my guest on the show today is somebody I've known most of my life. In fact, it's one of the first people I ever played music with. And we talk about that in the conversation. But yeah, I've known him since I was 13 or 14 years old. An amazing guitarist, an incredible songwriter, singer. He's been a part of The Slip, The Bar Brothers, and a lot of other really cool projects. Um, I'm really excited to get into this show. But first, let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. All right, he's an amazing guitarist, songwriter, arranger, singer, and a part of the Bar Brothers and the Slip and a lot of other great projects. I'd like to welcome today's plus one, Mr. Brad Barr. I often cite that summer that I met you and your brother as like kind of the beginning for me in terms of like, first off, like realizing that there were other people in my age group not that were way better than me musically a but also that were as into it and like kind of passionate about it uh, as i was so it's yeah that that marked like the moment of like okay i want to do this i want to see where i can i can go with this are you talking about the the national guitar summer workshop yes. summer yes. yeah yes. yeah oh man i i uh i mean i remember clearly sitting in that like downstairs rec room playing dead tunes with you yep. for 
like all night long, just going t- tune for tune. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then I think, and then the maybe like, did we do two summers there? The summer we yeah. met Tr- Trey, yeah. And then like, I mean, you came back the next year just cr- crushing it. Like you had, you had leapt forward as far as your concepts. Your your, I felt like I started to see the beginning of of Kraz back then and it's just like <laughs> <laughs> well i think my obsession really ignited that first summer because to be honest um i had just started playing um when i went for that first summer i think i was 13 or 14 and my brother yeah. was at this was there he was attending the guitar workshop and i think my parents were like uh, I think I was just old enough to be able to go and they were like, just go with your brother. And my brother like had to tote me along essentially. He was like hanging out with the older kids probably, sure. but cause he was like five year, five and a half years older than me. But I remember ah. that summer was like the intensive it was like, okay, you know, I went from like playing just like open chords and whatever to starting to figure out how to get around the instrument and start to figure it out. A lot of the first, a lot of firsts happened for me there. Like, I mean, just the first time I heard the name John Coltrane yeah. or Django Reinhardt or concept of intervals or anything, like a lot of first things happened there. And and the fact that we were there together, I know what you mean, like having some people in your age group that are, that you can kind of gauge yourself like okay i'm i'm first of all i'm not i'm not that weird just being like obsessed with with the instrument like there's other people that do it as much and think about it as much but also like people that take it people that were taking it as seriously as i was like you and uh, i remember remember justin wallace yeah 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 totally yeah i still i'm still in touch with that guy man yeah and he was in the band ulu which uh yeah, we played with we played with them quite a bit. Yeah, I've talked about this. You know, it's funny. I it's it, the podcast. It, it's not really interviews. It's more like me connecting with friends and talking about it, talking about all different types of things in the music world. But it's pretty crazy how you know my crew back then, or so many of the musicians I met during that time, are still the people I work with all the time or that I see on the road and you know whether it's you you and and your brother and Marco and these are all people I've known since I was like 20 you know or in my 20s and you going back even further but I remember when the slip started touring um you know just like I I was so blown away by the band but also just was so inspired by you guys because you guys had this unit and you guys started touring at such a young age and like building this following. And, um, you know, I was like, I know those guys, you know, <laughs> that was, uh, uh, you guys, you know, and I, I was, I've talked about this a few times. Do you remember the, um, cards? That was like a big thing that we all used to send out the dates, the uh, mailing, the cards. Mail- yeah, mailing cards. Yeah. yeah. And, and I'd be so stoked to see like everyone's mailing card. It was like the slip and, and moon boot lover. Moonboo lover yeah. Schleho. Schleho, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think we were just looking at Schleho and and yeah, Moonboot lover. We were just looking at what those guys were doing. Yeah, and and just kind of copying them. Like, oh, all right, Buffalo. They played in Buffalo. Where the where's Buffalo? And like, okay, <laughs> that's where you got. Wait, Pittsburgh. Okay, that looks kind of far. All right, we got to go to Pittsburgh. We we're just copying those guys and. Uh, yeah. Trying to keep up with them. You guys came along. I'm thinking like, I mean, let us was there early on yep. too. You guys yep. were there as as early as some of the Slips first gigs. Yep, like, for sure. 
But when Soul Live came on, then it then it was like talk about being impressed. Like we were all just kind of like, "What do we do now?" <laughs> <laughs> it was funny how like putting on the suits was such a like um, important thing in that band because I remember when when Alan proposed that idea. I mean, I was like you know a hippie, and so yeah. I was like a suit. Oh man, and we like went to Salvation Army and and got me like some <laughs> crappy suit. And uh, and then we w- we would load in. I've told this story, but like we would load in the gear with like hoodies on, then go back in the van and like change, and then walk in like you know like mm-hmm. we were we were the band now. Now we're, that was our roadies. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it does uh, something. It, it did something. something. It did something. It t- yeah. kind of like did like up the ante a little bit. Um, but yeah. that's that scene was um, is still something that I think about and talk about quite a bit. Um, and you guys were, were right there. And, and I also really loved watching you guys evolve because there was a lot of like instrumentals really in the beginning. And as you started like writing songs, why watching you develop as a songwriter? Um, cause like some, you know, I feel like you did that in public, you know what I mean? In, <laughs> which, but in a really cool way, cause it was really organic and, um, you know, and then to hear what you're doing now, I feel like it's been cool uh, to watch you um, evolve in your songwriting and your whole like approach. And I just watched a video that's like on your website of the a recent, like, I guess, whatever the most recent Bar Brothers concert. And I was just so blown away um, by the like layers going on in that performance and, and great players and the harmonies and, um, you know, that's always been there in your world, but watching it kind of develop and, and take these different turns has been uh, really, really interesting for me going all the way back, you know. You saw me lear- learning how to sing and like doing it, you know, I, I go back and listen to some, not even that long ago, like early 2000s slip stuff. It's pretty embarrassing. I, it took me a long time to figure out what to do with this yeah. thing and, and, and how to write a song and how to carry it through. Songwriting and singing did, did not come easy for me. It was, and I still identify more as a, a guitar player, instrumentalist. Yeah. Your new record, you're singing every track, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I can totally relate to learning on the job, essentially, because my... F- first record singing I released in like 2016 and you know I'd always been writing songs um but I got just deeper into it and when I made that record I initially was like oh I'm gonna get all these different singers and then as I started singing on the record I was like well maybe I should just do this but then taking it on the road was a whole other thing and I have that same cringe I mean I cringe when I listen to anything live from that time period and as a result, have been anything I've things I've been working on now, I, I have started to A, like develop my voice as much as I can, but also cater my songs to where I can sing, which I did not know about before. No, you, you know? know, that's one of the first things you just kind of, you start, you'll, you'll sing wherever, wherever you came up with your riff, you'll start singing and it doesn't, you don't think about like, where the pitch is or just like what even just how to be as as free with your voice as you are with your guitar you know i mean yeah. that's the idea is you yeah, get to yeah. that thing where, you, where you're just that 
loose with it. There's some things where learning the hard way is kind of the only way. Yeah, I definitely believe that. I mean, for me being in Soul Live, it was like I, I didn't really, I didn't consider myself like a jazz guy or even like a soul jazz guy when I first linked with them. And then it was kind of like, all right, let me just get my ass kicked by Neil and Al to the point where then I could feel confident, you know, in that space. And then the the music kind of, again, like kind of evolved in a certain way where it, it actually started like putting our strengths in front, you mm. know? Um, but in the beginning, uh, you know, I just, I, we just released like our first EP that was like the first day we got together was this, we made that EP called Get Down and we just re- released it like a 20 year or 21 year anniversary thing. And I listened back to it and I'm like, oh my God, you guys, I don't know if you were called the slip since the very beginning, but you guys started in 89. Is that right? The first version of the slip actually included none of us. Oh, okay. None, none of us. <laughs> None of us are in the first version of the slip, which might have started in 89 at right. our high at our high school. And right. then what happened was then, um, then I went to that high school as a sophomore. Uh, basically by the time I was a junior, Andrew came in, the guys who had been in the main guys who were in the slip or the kind of the rhythm section of the slip had graduated. Right. And there were t- two guys from the slip left, the lead guitar player and the lead singer. And so we joined me and Andrew and our friend Adam played bass, who was at guitar the guitar summer workshop. Adam oh, Mutterpro. Okay. Um, we joined the Slip, and it was a cover band. Did like did like L.A. Woman and Magic Carpet Ride and Scarlet Begonias, and nice. uh, we were playing at other high schools. And then um, let's see, that lead singer graduated. And then we just said, well, now let's do what we really want to do. Because the lead singer was, uh, he was a real front man that, you know, he had like wardrobe changes. Yeah, yeah. During his thing. And once he graduated, we're like, well, now let's just play this instrumental music that that's what we want to do. And so that, by that point, that was 92. So it, it had, it had probably been alive since 89, but I didn't really join it until 92. It's funny because we always just thought, well, we can't change the name now. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. T- too many, too many people know who the slip is. You know, it's, we don't <clears throat> don't want to have a public uh, a, a PR meltdown. Lettuce, lettuce was the same way. We all like hated the name for so long. We thought it was so silly, and it just kept because no one ever wanted to change it. No one wanted to change it. You've already got, you yeah. know, you already made are, flyers. The flyers, you made flyers. <laughs> <laughs> then it became uh, the trio with Mark after um, right. after high school. That's kind of when I think, I mean, that's when I think of it as really starting. Um, but the high school years were cool. They were like, we were all at boarding school. So we, every single night for two years, every night from like nine to 11, we would go and play. There was yeah. nothing else to do. We'd go to this, the music building and we'd play. And I, I think back, that's like, that's how I learned how to be in a band was like, I didn't, I didn't realize how intense the thing it was to do to every single night to play right. as a band for for two hours a night yeah i think about that it's like it would be so hard to do that now because now like whenever i'm like rehearsing for a new thing or having a band there's just so many responsibilities i'm like how do i squeeze in 
you know, practicing. But when you're, you know, when you have that opportunity, lettuce was the same way in the very beginning. And when we were at Berkeley, we would take over the little, on the tiny little, like, I think it was a drum room. It wasn't even like a band room. And we'd squeeze in there and play like all night long. Yeah. You know, and like every single night. And that was how we learned. Wait, what year did you start Berkeley? Well, actually, that was a different summer. That was like a few years later. Oh, by the way, Adam Smirnoff, Schmeens, was also at the National Guitar Workshop the year that we were there, the summer we really? were there. Yeah. I... And then a year or a few years later, or maybe a year later, I ended up at the five-week program at Berkeley, where and and Schmeens was there. And he was friends, he knew Deitch. And then I met like Jesus, Eric Coombs and Zoidis. I forget how we all, but we all ended up hanging that summer. And that was, that was 92. And then we all decided, yeah, we all decided, okay, we're going to like start this band for real when we come here for college, um, which was 94. So like 92 was the summer. And then I think Schmeen's end was a year older. So he ended up in Berkeley in 93 and the rest of us were freshmen in 94. And that's when we actually named the band. And, you know, I was like the guy making the flyers and riding my bike around Newberry street, putting up flyers. We play like basement house parties and wherever we could find a gig. You guys started before like the final version of the slip because the slip with mark didn't really start till 95 yeah 94 is when lettuce started playing shows you know and started like getting out there and i mean we would just open for whoever and we opened for moon boot lover a few times and that's how i met neil and al we played together i believe in providence kind of early on i think we opened for the slip at at, is it the living room? Is that the name of the venue? That that was a, that that was the uh, that was the kind of downtown like um, uh, roughneck neighborhood. Yeah, where, yeah uh, that sounds Lu- right. Lupo's Lupo's was the more um, actually was the more downtown one. The living room was off the off the yeah, other yeah. side of the tracks. Yeah, that was the one. Yeah, I'm pretty sure we opened for you guys there, but I saw okay. you guys at like all the different festivals you guys I, I was like i was a slip a slip head i also <laughs> remember seeing you guys at umass when i was going to hampshire college didn't we do it didn't let us in the slip play That's probably, a gig that i think that is probably it was a ho- a halloween gig yeah yeah topless um painted girls <laughs> and guys it was like yeah 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 kraz you, you go to school here <laughs> yeah right so that might have been at hampshire too yeah a lot of it bleeds together but that you know that was like you know the dream for a college kid is like to play these freaky you know uh yeah acid parties yeah yeah and then i remember you guys were big at the high you guys used to always do the high sierra music festival which eventually we ended up at and uh that was a whole yeah, we played there times, a few right? times. Yeah. And yeah. that was like a whole new scene for us. Um, but you know, you guys you guys were like hitting the road and er, you know, from early, you know. I, did you guys always kind of it was like from high school just picture like this is what we're going to do and we're going to hit the road and we're going to be a band and like like a lot of us I, I think the model of like the best way you can do it was was uh 
bands like Fish and right. uh, bands that just toured and toured and had a f- following like that and and didn't focus on things like radio, didn't focus on, didn't think about a, a hit song. Right. Didn't think about writing anything catchy. It was really just about like building a, a scene around the live, the word of mouth live band thing. And... And it's funny how that I said we really had such tunnel vision about that for for so long. Like I, uh, I didn't really consider any other way of doing it other than play locally. Once you get uh, enough people and can make a little money, then you buy a van. Once, yeah. You know, then get the van, just start driving around and booking all these shows. It was, which I mean, it's still kind of the way. I think the most organic way to do it, and guarantees that at least you're going to have a really good time. Uh, you're going to learn a lot. You're going to learn, you're going to fall on your ass a lot. It, you know, more than like trying to roll the dice and get a, a, a hit with something or like trying to aim for something that is, you know, more abstract, like a, like a certain, like a certain amount of commercial success was, was always too abstract. And I, I never could wrap my head around it, but like buying a van and driving around that, that made sense and playing right. live every night. And those are like achievable goals. That was the thing. It was like, okay, we know that if we do enough of this, we'll get to here and then we'll get to there. I wonder if like starting out now, um, if that same trajectory, I mean, I think there's all different ways now because there's the internet obviously changes a lot of things. But uh, I do feel like there was, it would be, I almost feel like it'd be harder now, even though there's access through the internet and all of that. But I, I, I do, I feel like there's such a sea of music coming at you like every day on your phone that it's hard to kind of find anything in a weird way. I feel like people usually look at their device for information or entertainment where before when, when we started touring, I mean, YouTube wasn't a way to build a career. Right, and YouTube right. wasn't a, a a thing at all. Internet wasn't a thing. Now people can actually like get a career just by sitting in in their room. Yeah, uh, a music career, you know, like just just without leaving the house and just getting YouTube followers. It seems less fun to me than hitting the road with your friends yeah. and and touring around. And uh, I don't know the I don't know if it's easier or harder. Fuck yeah. It's hard to say. It's hard to say. It depends how you're going about it. And it's hard right now in this it's sitting here today trying to remember how even even a year year and a half ago how I was what I was doing about finding out about shows and yeah. going to see bands. Like, do you remember the last concert you saw before the before this shutdown? Well, I actually did a show at the Beacon like the day everything shut down, and they, it was the day that they decided like, oh, are we gonna like we were trying to? But it was it was a big production. They had all these artists coming into town. There was like a big house band, and uh, it was this show, the Love Rocks concert that we do every year. It was crazy because it was right when all of it was shutting down. So they decided that day we're only going to have friends and family. But I'm trying to think before that, what was the biggest concert that I went to? I don't even know. I know that I, I know that I, I want to, I don't know, maybe my timeline's off, but I saw you guys up in uh, Mill Valley not that long before. Maybe my, t- maybe my timeline's off, but you, for the jam bass party. Oh, when you sat in. Yeah. And I sat yeah, in. Yeah. You sat guys. in. And that was the first time yeah. seeing all of you guys in forever. I was playing a gig. I think I played with Phil Lesh, like an outdoor gig 
that might have been in the summer or like late summer at uh at Terrapin and I didn't even know you guys were playing. A friend of mine texted me and said, Hey, there's a whole jam bass like event happening uh at Sweetwater and I came over and you guys were there and Reed Mathis was there and it was this crazy reunion. It was such a fun night. But uh, yeah, and I got to jump up and play with you guys, which was really fun. Yeah, we made you play in seven. I, was like, I remember that. <laughs> I remember that. I was yeah, trying to. I remember keep you saying up. you said something like, seven's not really my thing." But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I like that's funny. Don't even worry about it. Yeah, oh, but you guys did not sound like you'd been on hiatus. You guys sounded like you were right in there. I, I always find the yeah one of the best things you can do to practice as a band is not practice as a band yeah you get in there and all the all the little details we would have worried about of how to pull this song off like well i gotta do this loop thing and why don't you play the guitar part on that while i'm doing the loop until i get it to all that shit you're like i can't believe we sweated that let's just play the song please stick around we'll be right back after this short break So in 2006, you guys released an album called Eisenhower. And personally, knowing you guys, I I listened to that record a lot. And I heard like just a major change, like an evolution coming into that record. I remember hearing that first song, Children of December, which was the song I probably played the most. But I I loved that record. And I'm curious if you could tell me a little bit about what was going on with you and the band during that time and, and kind of like what um, what you were listening to and, you know, if you consider that like a, a big shift for you. Yeah, man, thank you. Because that's, that's the one record that I, that I really could stand behind for, for the slip. I mean, the other studio records were all sort of hits and misses and mostly misses. Um, <laughs> As as far as like what I can listen like pra- listen to and be like yeah we did a good job Eisenhower is kind of the first at the only studio record where I'm like I think we we got it right on that one on yeah. the last one Mark had really started to like l- listen to more modern rock and roll I I think right. I had for most of the Slips career and you know until the early 2000s I had really just pretty much listened to instrumental music you know uh, jazz bebop um bill frizzell john mclaughlin but it was around that time mark started listening to like um built to spill Mm. and modest mouse uh pj harvey um the strokes elliot smith it's like all this other stuff started coming in for me, Built to Spill was a big one just because yeah. it was the first band that I kind of like really dove into, Got had that same obsession that I hadn't had about a rock band since I was a teenager. And also at the same time, I, I had developed a friendship with Nathan where he was really in, influencing me, namely just in like really being able to stand behind the lyrics of a song, like making sure the thing was airtight, yeah. making sure I think a lot of other uh, other songs I'd written, other records and other eras I had 
lyrics were such an afterthought that I didn't, I didn't really care that much what the lyrics role was in the song. Right. As long as they filled a space for singing, um, I just didn't attribute that much um, power to them. And, and that changed a lot. I, I, I wanted the songs to be, to be able to be sung, you know, by one person. I, I guess it was just basic songwriter 101 that I'd, that I'd really missed that part of my education. I dove so quickly into wanting to be able to play, you know, Lydian flat seven scales all over the guitar that I, I missed the, the basic songwriting classes at Berkeley. <laughs> So that record, yeah, it was embracing the, our kind of adolescent rock and roll roots, and 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 also with the slip, we we'd also kind of tiptoed around it a lot. I think we had such we identified as you know serious musicians, and and by the time Eisenhower came, we were like just kind of dropped that facade uh, I kind of woke up a little bit and realized that we were you know we were northeast kids who grew up on rock and roll and and that that influence was there and we needed to let it out more it felt good I will always carry the words of your addiction with me even though they Curious. I want to go back a little bit now because you're talking about um, growing up listening to rock and roll and all of that. What was your household like as a kid, music-wise? Because obviously, I, I think most people know that your brother has been your musical cohort kind of throughout. So I'm curious, what got, what inspired you guys to start playing at a young age? Well, it certainly wasn't my parents' record collection. Okay. <laughs> That's... <laughs> That was I can sum that up as uh Anne Anne Murray, Neil Diamond and the Eagles was uh Nice. Was most easy listening. Yeah. Is easy listening. And those were the best records in the collection. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Um you know, and we had a neighbor who was this crazy troubled kid. His mom had died, his dad was uh, in the theater. Uh, and he would come over and and he just wanted to to play and he kind of I think like any kids at MTV was starting to come around so we were we were into the instruments you know always seeing that as as cool and fun even though we didn't know anything about it just like watching people on MTV do it I have to say MTV was probably like our biggest influence yeah at the time so for us yeah our parents were just they were just really like uh, encouraging. They never, they didn't say no. They didn't tell us like shut up or to you know, yeah. if if Andrew wanted to, uh, a drum set, you know, it was like a, it usually happened. You know, it's like they they were like, all right, well, yeah, sure, drum set, okay. I, I, there's a word for it, but they're just very allowing and yeah, yeah, and that just gave us the space to go down there and really for us, we were just 
working out our we were just working out the like we had the guitars and the drums set up and then right next to it was a, a boxing ring um nice. <laughs> that so it was really the same thing like we'd either yeah. like go down we'd go downstairs and be like all right we're gonna punch you know punch each other in the boxing ring or play the guitar and the drums it's kind of the same energy that that went towards both right, and right. um yeah and maybe it was the fact that my parents were just uh, it was just something very it, they didn't play music so it seemed like a cool thing to do right right like i wonder what our kids are gonna I imagine that the the children of musicians it, it it might just the pendulum might swing the other way. I don't know. Yeah, that's I've been curious about that. I mean, my son's only six months old, but I bring him in here and he it's like a playland. You know, I I, I put him in front of the piano and he bangs on it and he loves like when the he loves banging on things and the drums. He's anytime anyone touch plays a drum, he's just obsessed. You know, are, are you is your son into? music and playing or yeah as long as i'm not showing it to him the minute i start trying to like uh, show him anything he's six he'll be seven yeah. in, a, in a couple months yeah. um so he's got a whole attitude he really he'll make up songs if i'm playing along he'll just sing i feel like he's got a that kind of like i don't know right brain like it, it can just spit stuff out he can right. speak can like he can flow he can he can t- sing a song off the you know freestyle yeah yeah for 20 minutes and like, and I have some pretty good lines in there too. Yeah. So nice. good rhythms. Yeah. He's almost more of an MC. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. So we'll see. Andrew's son is like, is a pure drummer, man. It's crazy. Oh, yeah. Andrew's, Andrew's son is four. He's four. Okay. Uh, four. And he can, he can play, uh, anything Meg White played. Yeah. Otis can play at four years old. Nice. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. It's pretty awesome. So in 2005, you guys made the move to Montreal. What inspired that move? The long story, which I'll still do kind of short, is goes like this. Uh, 2003, we were playing a show in Montreal, uh, and the venue caught on fire. Wow. It was, um, it was May 2003. Last song, we smelled smoke, the alarms went off, sprinklers grabbed the guitars, ran outside. It was raining. And Andrew met in that, in the like standing around with the fire trucks, you know, putting out the shit, wondering if our gear was getting melted. Andrew met this really sweet girl there. They just talked for 20, 30 minutes um, or maybe an hour. I don't know. While the, while they put out the fire and we could go back in. She was a waitress there. A year later, 2004, we're playing Montreal again because we always played Montreal in May, which is the nicest time to be in Montreal. Yeah. He thought, I'm just going to call up there and see if I can find that that girl that I was talking to that night. Yeah. And he called the same club that we were playing, which had a, now had a makeover. I don't know. It was uh, it got fixed back up, and it was like her first day back at work after being gone for six months or so. She answered the yeah. phone. It's wow. like hello and. It, and Andrew's asking, like, yeah, I'm looking for this girl named Megan. She's like, yeah. Uh, it was just one of those crazy, yeah, yeah. crazy serendipitous things. Long story short, they, they get a thing going. He's doing these trips to Montreal. He finally told me he was going to move up there to be with her. And I was going to move to New York to be with um, Nellie. I don't know if you remember Nellie. It was my old girlfriend. You probably yeah. don't. I think I may have met uh, her. But... I know. Yeah, I think you did. Um, and we like broke up. And next thing I know, I was in Montreal. I was in Montreal about a month after Andrew 
yeah. had moved up here. Yeah, yeah. And the slip had kind of broken up too. Like before we, when we went in to make Eisenhower, that's another good point that I forgot. When we went in to make Eisenhower, it was like, okay, I know we're broken up. I know, we, I know, you know, we decided we're not going to play anymore. But let's go in and make Eisenhower in 2006. Because when I moved to Montreal in 2005, like I remember, uh, broke up with my girlfriend. The slip broke up. There's no more of the slip. Right. Yeah. And uh, and I'm moving out of Boston. Like everything, flipped everything flipped. I was, I think, I was 29 years old, and uh, and it had all kind of flipped on its head. I'm just remembering because when you said, "What were you guys thinking? What was going on in the slip?" You know, when you made Eisenhower in 2006. Yeah. Telling this story, I was like, "Oh yeah, we weren't a band." What inspired that? The the split was it not wanting to be on the road? Was it was it everyone together? Was it? I remember mid tour, probably two thousand five. Mid tour, we'd gotten into a an argument about something, and Mark just said, "Take me to the airport." We're like, "What?" He's like, "Take me to the airport now." I think I think we were in like North Carolina. So it was the middle of a tour. Middle of the tour, yeah. Oh, we were in we were in North Carolina, and he was just he'd hit he'd hit a wall, and he was like, "Take me to the airport now." So we actually drove to the airport. He couldn't get a flight. We like sat in the parking lot of the airport, watching through the glass windows as Mark was at the the kiosk, you know, like legitimately trying to buy a, a flight back home. And he came back out and he's like, there's no flights. So we finished the tour. But at the end of that tour, that was, uh, he said he, he, he needed a break. Wow. So that, had, that was after 10 years of playing. That was from, uh, that was 2005. And uh, yeah, that makes sense. A decade is a, it's a long time. I mean, I feel like Soul Live went through that so many times, but we never announced everything. <laughs> You know, it was kind of like, yeah, okay, yeah. we're going to take a break and we'll see. And, you know, there was times where it was like, this is over. But it's kind of one of those things where it's never really over. We just don't, you know, we just, when people want to do it again, we do it again. Yeah, same with us. We never, we never made any public announcement then. I think it's probably in the knowing that like the slip never really had a, a beginning is like this beginning was so amorphous with like it yeah. started as this cover band and then we then a couple of us were in there and then all of a sudden it changed to Mark and Andrew and so w- without any real beginning why actually ever give it an ending we actually booked the uh the peach festival yeah. in um in in Pennsylvania I think uh yeah that w- that was going to be last summer oh yeah yeah it, yeah and now I think it's supposed to be this summer so I think I don't know if it's happening yet. I still haven't gotten word, but yeah, we'll see. But we're on the slip is booked at that festival as cool. well as two two nights at Brooklyn Bowl, Philly, a couple other shows. So yeah, still doing it. So one of one of my uh, favorite things you've ever done, and I think I tell you this like every single time I see you, is the album called The Fall Apartment. Oh yeah, man, your acoustic yeah. album, and. Uh, it was also, I, I had that in my, it was like the CD in my car when I was like traveling around one summer a lot. I was actually going up to record with Alan a bunch and I was driving around Vermont and that was like my backdrop to this one part of my life. But uh, you once told me, you know, that part of that was inspired by hearing Sarah through the wall 
right? And that was like yeah. kind of what yeah, started. Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about how that came together? And then that kind of grew into that relationship with with her and what eventually became the Bar Brothers. Bar Brothers. Yeah. True. Yeah. Well, first, man, you're just so goddamn generous with your words and your I mean, thank you for 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 giving that record props cuz it was a cool thing to to do and and I would love to hear you do. Ever I've been wanting to do. I actually have a few tracks or a few things now that I am going to make into that eventually, but that is one of the things that inspired me, you know, to want to do that. That Yeah, it's, it's it's fun to hear your your, you know, your friends, your guitar player, uh, the guitar players you you love. Uh, I always liked that, like, you know, Bill Frizzell just by himself, you know, or John McLaughlin just sitting down by himself, Mark Ribot. Yeah. So, yeah, it's a, it's a format that I love. It's pretty scary when, it, when it's yourself doing it because um, it doesn't sound as charming as it does. <laughs> like, the... The the raw mistakes never sound quite as cool yeah. as as when they're being made by you know Jimi Hendrix. But um, that was right when I moved to Montreal. I I had started making that those songs. I remember moving to Montreal and I was making some of the songs on the Fall Apartment were actually made me trying to get that girlfriend Nelly that I broke up with right before moving here is me trying to get her back. I was going to work. I was like, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to record all this music that I know she likes. This kind of romantic, nostalgic, gypsy, classical, neoclassical. I don't know. I thought I'd kind of write her this musical love letter. So I started recording it as that with that in mind. Um, And then I moved into within a, a, a couple months of starting it, I moved into this apartment and I could hear through my bedroom wall harp coming through my wall every morning I'd wake up and I'd hear this somebody playing the harp practicing harp and it was just a nice thing it was just kind of a cool little little characteristic of my first uh apartment in Montreal and eventually I met her um it's my friend Sarah Page but yeah there was one day when I I heard this I heard one song coming through I heard it I grabbed my guitar I like Listen, they played it. I learned the song. Actually, I think this is how I went to meet her. This was before I met Sarah, but I could just hear her. I, I learned the little song, and then I knocked on her door, and I was like, hey, check out, check this out. Yeah. And she didn't recognize what I was playing. I was like, you don't recognize that? I was like, that's what you've been playing all morning. She's like, whatever you're playing I've is nice, but I've never heard that before. <laughs> I was like, it's really weird. I, I, think, I think I was... I think she was practicing a part that was like a part in a in a symphony or something that right. was like a small part that would have had this and where the time started like the beginning of the measure I think I was hearing in a different place and I was Right right. But that's how we that's how she and I became became friends and and how the record got its title it was the, the Fall Apartment it was like uh I was kind of having a meltdown and also being really inspired at the same time. And it was, it was kind of my first, it was my first apartment in Montreal and it was, it was uh, the fall. Yeah. And you're falling apart. (laughs) And I was falling apart. (laughs) And coming together at the same time. Yeah.
your record, which you sent me, is is amazing. By the way, Thank I've you, been man. Uh, I've been digging that so hard. I've been playing the tracks for Andrew. We're trying to oh, like, cool. yeah. It sounds like you went into like a classic recording studio from the '60s or something. You know what's funny? It was all done digitally, but I worked with a guy. His name's Joe Begale. His online name is Otis McDonald, and you can he he posts a lot of really cool videos, and he plays like every instrument. But on the record, he actually has um, a, a room at Hyde Street Studios, and that particular room is where American Beauty was recorded, and. Like thrust by Herbie Hancock and like this a crazy array of records have been made in that room. So all the drums, he played drums like in that room and did a lot of the engineering. And But we did it all via satellite in terms of like, I basically would lay down, you know, the bass, like some, in a lot of cases, guitar, bass, and I would do like a really simple drum track in, in the song, the bare bones. I'd send it to him. He'd add drums maybe some keys or whatever. And we went back and forth, back and forth like that. But it, so it was done very digitally, but with like the analog type kind of uh, sensibility. It's nice. I always, I always thought that when you got to be our age, like that was you're either like doing your comeback record or you're, you know, somehow not as inspired. I don't know. It's, it's cool to see that you just keep getting better. Yeah. I, well, I also think like, in the current day, what's fun for people like, like us. And I don't know if I, I don't know if I'm speaking for you um, on this is that as a kid to make a record, you had, you like had to build up the material and there's also a lot of pluses to this. And then you had, you had such a short time to experiment in the studio generally, you know, because right. you either had a budget or you had a certain amount of time. And now that it's, easier to have your own studio and have your own gear and we can learn all of these cool tricks that you used to have to have all this old analog gear that was way too expensive it allows for this the ability to to evolve in a in a, in a different way you know and and try different things and you know i don't know if i would be singing and doing all of this stuff if i had to like prep and prep and prep and then go in the studio for two days like now i get to sit here and try all these cool things and experiment and you know i've made so much music in quarantine you know which is like the silver lining to it all is that i've gotten to gotten to like sit in a, in a studio essentially this entire time <laughs> you know yeah which is a uh, kind of a pretty amazing luxury yeah i'm with you amazing luxury yeah i'm with you um i just mastered the the record i i hadn't mastered it and uh and i didn't know what sequence it was going to be it's done now though and this is the acoustic like kind of part two somewhat yeah that's why that's why i was bringing it up was because um it is it's actually uh it's called um the winter mission Oh, I um, like it. I like fall, it. Follow up to the fall apart. I mean, the winter mission. Oh, you know, that makes sense. Okay. Great. We, we've we've been on uh, intermission for the last year, so uh, it's done. It's gonna come out on vinyl on um, on Secret Secret City. Who puts out the the Bar Brothers stuff? We'll be right back after a quick message from our sponsors.
I still want to ask you a little bit about um, the Bar Brothers because we didn't really talk much about that. Um, yeah. And how that kind of evolved. I know you working with Sarah and and then obviously your brother, but, uh, and, you know, how that kind of became a thing and then you guys got out on the road again and have made, how many records have you guys made as the Bar Brothers now? Three full length, one EP. Yeah. So how how did that first record kind of come together? Yeah, it happened mostly here at this studio. Yeah, it was kind of the first batch of tunes I'd I'd come up with, um, having moved to Montreal. Kind of feeling like I uh, I wanted to go further with understanding the songwriting and 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 just me and an acoustic guitar. It was I think I thought I was writing a a, a my first solo record. Actually, I didn't yeah. really know what what was going to be happening. The first bunch of recording I did for that down here was me thinking I was I was making a, a solo singer songwriter record. Yeah, and and then Andrew would come in and be like, "Oh, that yeah, that's cool. Want you know, could use some like marimba or something." So he'd play a marimba, and then every song he he had. I think I was making my it was my first attempt to be like, "I'm gonna kind of go this alone for a minute." I've always yeah, been yeah. with Andrew, but he kept coming in and and making it better, and I realized, okay, this is stupid and and, <laughs> and and lonely to try and do this by myself and we were both kind of equally curious what the harp could do and we'd met a great upright bass player this guy miles perkin so with miles sarah myself and andrew it was it was really just kind of experimenting can we take these folk songs and make them really interesting and different melodic with like the melodic percussive side of the harp try it we were looking at the harp like a like a chora or something. Yeah, yeah, we were yeah. looking at it like how can we how can we get like I think putting toilet paper between the strings and a contact mic on it and plugging it into an amp. But that was our first yeah. thing. Like like let's deaden it a little bit and and grunge it up. And that was it. And Miles was a very percussive bass player. He he put like alligator clips on the on the strings and so it really had this like uh yeah percussive thing going on um where i could just play play these little songs and they give them this really interesting sonic kind of experimental bed was like the push that kept us that pushed us for the first few years really was like just that formula and that first record was was really made out of that out of that mold and then second record it was really like trying to figure out if it was if it was a sustainable if that band could absorb all this other music like um heavier stuff and now you know then eventually sarah left sarah left the band yeah. uh about two years ago lucky enough to find a, a, another great harp player um, named evelyn who stepped right in pedal steel has now been a like kind of a regular player we had a great great player named joe grass and now a guy named brett lanaire it seems like it's becoming a band that can you know kind of have this like extended family of musicians and yep. when we go on the road there's a a bunch of people we could we could call on but by the end, you know, for the last three years, it's been, you know, myself and Andrew, the same bass player, Morgan Moore, um, 
Evelyn and, and Brett. But right now, Andrew and I are kind of making this next record just just he and I so far. Yeah. No, n- nobody else has come in. Which we just realized the other day is also a little bit of a lonely way to make a record. And I think we're going to start sending it around to people, all the like the songs we started, we think, had the thought of sending people stems. Right, like, right. What would you do with this, you know? Like, yeah. uh, knowing that it could all be redone. I could redo the guitar, redo the vocal, redo the drums, whatever, swap it out. But letting someone just kind of like, letting someone else's ears have a, a, a say in it, you know? Yeah, that's been um, something that I was always kind of hesitant to do pre-COVID. And then now it's just kind of like, why not? You know what? And and there's been, it's opened up a lot of cool possibilities. Um, And as I feel like a lot of us are getting more savvy with our own recording setups and stuff like that, it's it's a cool way to create. Um, It doesn't always work, but it's one of those things where it's worth trying. How did you get to know, uh, remind me of the guy's name who, who works the Hyde, Hyde Street? Uh, Otis, yeah, Joe Bigel, yeah, yeah, Otis McDonald uh, is his like stage name. But, uh, you know, I met him really through a guy named Will Blades, an organ player from the Bay Area. And uh, although it turns out we had a lot of mutual friends once we connected, but uh, he asked me to be a part of this compilation he was doing to get for this benefit compilation called Song Aid. And we did a song. Uh, I wanted, we wanted, he wanted to do a cover and I'd been listening, I'd been on like a Dylan deep dive and the man in me was just like in my head constantly. And so we did a version. That's actually on Spotify, the version that we did. Oh yeah. He's yeah. singing, you're playing? Or you're actually, singing? I, I was singing because I was like practicing nice. singing that song, but I had a whole different way that I had been singing it. And oh, like, yeah. that was kind of like this more like almost like a Motown-ish kind of nice. version of what it would be. Anyway, so I sent him like, ser- just like me playing guitar, singing it you know, and he made this beautiful track with it where he put drums and he put bass and keys and sang backgrounds. And I was like, holy shit, this guy's amazing. And uh, so we made that one song and then I was like, hey man, I got a bunch of others. So I started sending him some other songs and and then then I was like, oh, let's do an EP. And then it was like, let's just make an album. And now we've got like two albums of material. So it's, uh, but we're putting out that one. Um, so, uh, yeah, that was how it all started was, you know, I, I was originally like, okay, I'm going to sit down and do that acoustic album. Cause I'm just here by myself. And I cut a few songs like that. And then once I started working with him, I was like, you know, maybe I can just make a full on, you know, album, album. It was a discovery for me on the last record was that I, I, a lot of the vocals that I kept were um, sing with the guitar, yeah. like sing the the lyrics of the song while playing them. Uh, it's a weird psychological shift, but I could I could be way more expressive when I played mm. the melo- the same melodic line with myself. Absolutely, you know? I feel the same way. I, I have trouble still really playing independent, like mm. strong rhythmic stuff while I'm singing, like I, I, my, my vocals tend to get worse. Like if I'm not playing guitar and I can, I can sing way more in tune. If I'm playing something kind of complicated rhythmically on guitar, but then, yeah, but if they join together, I'm the same way. It like totally makes it way more, way stronger. 
There was a track on our record, last record, it was uh, called You'd Have to Lose Your Mind. And it was, that was the thing I was trying to, trying to get the vocal, couldn't do it. And then the minute I sang, the minute I sang with it, it was like, I could just do it. Yeah. I could just actually pull it off. It was, it was like, um, so now there, it just seems like there are some songs like that for me. I gotta, I gotta sing a lot, play along with the singing. Yeah. And you, at least in the video that I saw, you you had another guitarist on stage too. Yeah, a pedal steel slash second guitar player. Yeah, I dig that. And then who yeah. was playing? You had a woman playing keys, like playing a Juno and Whirly. Yeah, that's um, our bass player's wife, Lisa. She stepped in when um, when Sarah left, kind of because Sarah left pretty much mid like. I think the record had been out for a month and she yeah, decided yeah. she she needed to leave and we had a whole almost year of shows booked. Yeah. Um so Lisa stepped in. She we've known Lisa for uh for t- about 10 years and she uh is just a multi-instrumentalist. So she was playing yeah, like Juno uh whatever um Nord things. Yeah. Um yeah. Wurlitzer, uh, auto harp, uh, thumb oh, piano, cool. wow. like all the th- weird sounds that the harp was making. We kind of found a way to get to get them onto some kind of keyboard um, or handheld instrument that she could play. And she was pregnant too. Wow. That. <laughs> yeah, yeah. During that whole time, the the reason sh- she left was because she was she was about to have her baby. In terms of the Bar Brothers, you could, you guys will get back on the road when things open up again, you think? If we can get this record, uh, this next record finished, we got like 12 demos. You know, you never, in your own studio, and for us, it's like, I never know if I'm making an, the record or the demo. We're so haphazard with our mics and preamps that like, if something sounds good, I don't know that I can just recreate it. Right, you know, like right. I don't know what I what I did, what I so trying not to get too attached, but also knowing that like this might just be the record. I don't know. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, just we're, we're down here every day. Andrew's in the back right now practicing his drums. We got it. We all live together too. We live in the same house. Right, right. Um, I live upstairs. He lives downstairs, and we're down here at the studio together all the time. So is the studio in the house, like beneath the house, or a separate space? Yeah. No, a separate space. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah uh, probably, probably good. Good. Yeah. Yeah, definitely good. Yeah. It's like a a three minute drive from our oh, house. Cool. So cool. it's really easy. I appreciate you taking the time, brother. It's so great good to, to hang uh, with you, man. Connect. Yeah, hopefully Indeed. we can do it in person sooner than later. Oh, we will. I love you. All right, you. brother. Love you too, man. We'll talk soon. Talk soon. Later. Bye. thank brad Barr for being on the show such a cool dude and great musician great to catch up with him before we go i'm going to play one of my favorite tracks by the slip this is off of their album eisenhower and the track is called children of december
September have a clutch Cause their birthdays are the hardest to remember When you're born on Christmas The day before New Year's They can sing happy birthday But, but, but nobody hears it I was lucky I was born In the summer of 1975 It was hot as an oven Families that were loving each other In November By April were planning on their new family member Save one for the empirical boy with his empirical toys The Hot Wheels, the Autobots, and the Decepticons And everyone's waiting to see what he's worth But he is invincible like a breeze on the earth I was holding something in my hands so tightly I was afraid to let it go I was afraid to even know I was holding something
Eric Krasno Plus One is hosted by me, Eric Krasno. Executive producers are RJB and Christina Collins. Audio production by Matt Dwyer. Produced by myself and Ben Baruch of 1111 Group. All original music is by me, and most of which are instrumentals from my album, Telescope, under the artist name Kraz. This podcast is presented by Osiris Media. If you'd like to get in touch with us, email Kraz plus one at Gmail. That's K-R-A-Z-P-L-U-S-O-N-E at gmail.com. Send me some questions. Maybe I'll answer them on air. Send me suggestions of other guests you'd like to hear on the show. Thanks again for tuning in. I'll see you next time. Osiris. Oh,